Well, this morning I'm going to start a new series on the end times, on eschatology. I have entitled kind of the, the broad umbrella, God's Revelation Concerning the Future. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks doing an overview. And as we're starting here this morning, let me begin by saying the four-movie installment known as The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games came out in the beginning of 2012, and it became a huge box office hit. I looked it up yesterday. It has now grossed internationally about $3 billion. This four-movie set called The Hunger Games was a worldwide phenomenon. Those movies were some of the most popular ever in the genre that is known as dystopia. Now, that may not be a term you're real familiar with. Dystopia is the opposite of utopia. We've all heard of utopia. That's bliss. That's perfection. That's what we think of as heaven. Utopia, bliss, perfection. Dystopia is just the opposite of that. So you can pretty well picture what is going on in those movies. Sometimes that genre of literature is also known as post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic. So post-apocalyptic is life after life as we know it now. There's been a lot of apocalyptic movies or post-apocalyptic movies and books that have come out. You'll recognize some of them. Waterworld, Planet of the Apes, the Terminator movies. Let me see what else is down here in in that particular genre that I, I wrote a few others down. The Matrix is another one. They show what life is like, kind of like after normal life, after the collapse of the world. We call them, again, dystopian style or genres or post-apocalyptic. Now, not surprisingly, Hollywood, and not just Hollywood, but lost people with a secular worldview are going to have a very pessimistic view of what the world is going to be like in the future because they see what the world is like now and how it's becoming worse in many ways. So they're going to have a very pessimistic view of the world. But that stands in stark contrast. That's very different. And it's really the polar opposite of what the Bible teaches about the future for Christians. We do believe in a utopia. We call it heaven. We believe it is going to come to pass here on earth. It's called the millennial reign of Christ. The pessimistic worldview is very different than the Christian worldview. We have great hope and great encouragement from the Word of God. So in the next several weeks, I hope to help you have a better understanding of God's revelation concerning the future. That's what I'm kind of calling this series, God's revelation concerning the future. What does the Bible say about the end times? What does the Bible say about the end times, the return of Christ? So the first couple of messages are going to be somewhat introductory to give us an overview, and then we'll get into some of the specifics and spend a a message on some of the specifics like the rapture like the Antichrist, like the tribulation, like the judgment seat of Christ, 
is talked about in the Bible, or Armageddon, or the millennial kingdom, or the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. So we're going to talk about those things more specifically, but we've got to kind of get a, an overview here first. Number one in what we're going to look at here this morning is, why should I learn about Bible prophecy? You may be sitting there saying, oh no, why is pastor going to preach about prophecy? I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's like a closed book to me. Why should I learn about Bible prophecy? Number one, the Bible addresses it so we should know it. The Bible addresses it so we should know it. Because it's in the Bible, it's really our responsibility to have a grasp, to have an understanding of what the Bible says. If we want to understand the Bible and implement it into our life, we want to understand the Bible, we can't ignore certain parts of it that to us seem maybe mysterious or difficult to understand or maybe even irrelevant to our life right now. We can't say, well, that's in the future. I'm worried about my problems right now. Give me something right now. No, it is for right now. Prophecy is warp and woof in the Bible. The Bible is integrated. And if you want to understand angelology or harmatology or any other doctrine, they're woven together. They're building block. You can't understand all about one doctrine without having a, a general understanding and comprehension of the other doctrine. So we're going to study eschatology. Second, prophecy is a significant part of Scripture. Prophecy is a significant part of Scripture. We find it from the very beginning in the Bible. The first couple of chapters in the Bible, when Adam and Eve chose to sin and disobey God, and then God comes to them and he pronounces a curse upon the serpent, the man, the woman, actually against the entire earth. This earth is under a curse. And he pronounces a curse, but he also promises that it's going to be wrapped up someday. That paradise will be restored. The Garden of Eden will come again. And he promises that he will send his son as a redeemer. He doesn't say it quite that clearly in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But he promises a redeemer, a Messiah that would restore mankind. Prophecy starts in the very earliest parts of the Bible. You look through the Bible, whether it be the law or whether it be the historical books, Certainly, we think of the major and the minor prophets are filled with prophecies talking about Christ's first coming. And whether we really understand them sometimes, it's talking about his second coming, his still to come, second coming. So the major and minor prophets deal with prophecy. Of course, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus talks about the future. He told his disciples that they were to be future-oriented. Matthew chapter 24, verse 44, he told them to be ready for the coming of the Son of Man, to prepare themselves. That was the next major event on the horizon, and he dealt with prophecy. Of course, the Apostle Paul in his writings, we think of the Thessalonians, but it's not just the books of the Thessalonians. All throughout Paul's writings, he alludes to and specifically describes coming events. The last book in our Bible, the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation, is all about fulfilled prophecy, and it wraps up human history. The Bible is replete. It's full of prophetic statements that we need to have some comprehension of. 
The Bible addresses it so we should know it. And it's the doctrine called eschatology. Eschatos is simply the Greek word meaning last. It's a study of last things, the end times. Eschatology completes and punctuates the other doctrines. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, mankind, sin, the fall, the angels, heaven, they all find their conclusion. They all culminate at the end of the age, and that's prophecy. Every worldview, a third reason, must explain the end of all things. Whether people realize it or not, maybe even whether Christians realize it or not, you have a worldview. We've talked about this on a number of occasions. Worldview topics determine five things we often say. Your worldview explains what you think about in these five areas. First of all, origins, identity, meaning, morality, and destiny. Let me back up and hit those again. Your worldview determines what you believe about these five things. First of all, origins. Your worldview explains what you believe about how you got here, how the world got here, how it all started. It explains your view of origins. Second, it explains your view of identity. Who am I? Well, if you're an evolutionist, you're just a, a blob that's slightly more advanced than some other blobs on the evolutionary scale. But if you're a Christian, you have a clear understanding that you're made in the image of God and your identity is found in Christ. So it determines origin, it determines identity, it determines meaning. Not only where did I come from and who am I, but meaning answers the question of why am I here? You know, what's my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? What's the meaning of life? Is it just a constant cycle of birth and death? Or a worldview explains your meaning. And then next one, number four, morality. How should I live? Is there right and wrong? Are there virtues and vices? Uh, what does God expect from me? It explains that area of morality. And the last thing there that I mentioned is destiny. Destiny answers the question, what's going to happen after this life? What's going to happen on the long term? Destiny answers that question, then what happens when we die? Where is history headed? It's important to study prophecy and to understand the end times because the end times affect our worldview, especially in that last area. Where is history headed? You know, the Middle Eastern mindset is it just kind of revolves. It's a, it's a constant ongoing cycle that's really never interrupted. But that's not the biblical worldview. History is headed somewhere. As biblicists, our view of the end is very different than a secular evolutionist. Our view of the end is very different than a Hindu in reincarnation. Our view of the end is very different than a Muslim that has a perverted, we would say a sexually perverted view of paradise. Matter of fact, we'd say our worldview would be different than a Catholic, the way I was raised, or even a Mormon and their view of hell and 
purgatory or, and then heaven or as the Mormons believe that they will become a god and populate their own universes, their own planet, etc. They have a very different view of the end. We want to have a biblically centered and grounded view of the things to come. Our worldview holds up under scrutiny. It does. Why do I say that? Because so many prophetic scriptures have already been validated. We can hold up our holy writings and say, wait a minute, there have been hundreds and hundreds of scriptures and prophecies that have been validated so we can trust the rest of them that haven't been fulfilled. So our worldview holds up under scrutiny. They've been validated and therefore we can take great comfort from them as we read them. Number four, understanding the future will change the way that you live or should. Understanding the future will change the way that you live. The Bible teaches that history is moving along purposefully. It's not random. It's not by chance. It's not an accident. History is moving along purposely as our sovereign God has prescribed. It's moving along purposely towards a divinely ordained goal. The end of the age and things are wrapped up. Your life today, we could say, is shaped by your beliefs about tomorrow. Maybe we'd say, your life today, what you believe about the future is going to shape and inevitably shapes your life today because you believe in what's coming in the future. You believe that there's going to be a judgment for the lost. There's going to be reward for the saved. There's going to be eternal bliss in heaven. You, how you live today is influenced by what you believe about the future. Number two, how trustworthy is biblical prophecy? I alluded to that a moment ago. That's what we're talking about. How trustworthy is biblical prophecy? Prophecy, understand, is unique to Christian literature. Other religions don't have prophetic literature because they don't have the real God. <laughs> And their holy writings are more about morals sometimes than they are about the future. They can't deal with that. Prophecy is unique to Christian literature. God knew that there would be false prophets and false prognosticators. Early on in Holy Writ, he deals with them. One of the classic examples is one of several, but Deuteronomy chapter 18. Why don't you turn there? We haven't opened our, our Bibles just yet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, God speaks to the nation of Israel and he warns them about false prophets. Whenever you have the truth, there will be counterfeits. If you have true religion, there's going to be false religion. And so God warns them, Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting at verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, he thinks he can be a prophet and he takes it on himself, who presumes to speak in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. In other words, you're to put him to death. It's capital crime in ancient Israel. 21, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know 
the word which the Lord has not spoken. How are we to differentiate whether he's a true prophet or not? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously or out of his own accord, and you shall not be afraid of him. You shall not listen to him. The Bible here and other places talk about false prophets. Beware of false prophets. And one of the ways that you can tell that they're a false prophet, when they're predicting the future, if it doesn't come to pass, they're not sent from God. They're a false prophet. He instructed Israel essentially to kill them or afterwards to ignore their words. Second, do you realize there are more than 300 passages in the Old Testament that prophesied about Christ? More than 300 passages talking about Christ. Many being fulfilled in his birth, his life, his death, and in his resurrection. In fact, on the last day of Christ's earthly life, on the day that he was crucified, he fulfilled 33 prophecies. On the last day of his life, when he was hung on the cross, 33 prophecies. I've selected some. I think they can put them up here on the screen of comparing Old Testament prophecies, how you summarize it, and then New Testament. Let's look at the first one here. Genesis 3.15. The Bible says that the Savior would be the seed of a woman. No other place does it refer to the woman having seed. That comes from the man. We understand that. But it refers to the seed of the woman would be the Savior. And of course, that's referring to Christ because he was virgin born and that was fulfilled in Galatians 4, 4. The next one is Isaiah seven fourteen that he would be born of a virgin. Nobody's ever been born of a virgin other than Jesus Christ. That was fulfilled, the Bible tells us here in Matthew 1, 18 and verse 23. The next one. 5-2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Matter of fact, there were two Bethlehems. If you've probably heard me and other people say there was a Bethlehem in the north and there was a Bethlehem in the south. And the Bible says he would be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, just outside of Jerusalem, about three or four miles south of Jerusalem. And that was fulfilled. Here is Micah prophesying it. It's fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. I remember hearing one of my professors say how he came to Christ. He was a student at Harvard and an atheist, and he got sick, and he went to the hospital, and in the hospital room, he was next to a Christian who was a devout young man who was a Christian, and he said, he started witnessing to the atheists, and he said, I don't believe any of that. I think Jesus was just a good man that knew the scriptures and went about fulfilling them, doing the best he could to fulfill them. He said to him, well, how did he fulfill that he was going to be born in Bethlehem? And he couldn't get away from that. It stuck in his mind. Nobody arranges where they're going to be born. And it eventually brought him to Christ. Then he taught science later on. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 said he would be preceded by a forerunner. We know that's John the Baptist. And that's fulfilled, Matthew chapter 3. John came baptizing and proclaiming that the Messiah has come. And then another one, Psalm 41 verse 9, that he would be betrayed by his friend, one of his disciples, one of his close associates. And that was fulfilled, as we know, in the New Testament as well. And it tells us that. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7, that Jesus would be silent before his accusers. You know, Pontius even says, aren't you going to defend yourself? Don't you realize that, that I have the power of life and death in your case? He was like a lamb before the slaughter silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53 verse 9, he would be buried with the rich. 
You can't arrange what happens to you after you die. And, and Jesus hadn't made provisions that way, except in the sovereign act of God. And Joseph of Arimathea gives up his tomb, and Jesus is buried in it because he only used it for a short period of time. And then Psalm 16, verse 10, that he would be resurrected. And we understand as Christians, of course, that was fulfilled. There are many, and I just listed a few of prophecies that were told in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the life of Christ. But prophecy covers more than just Messiah's coming or even his second coming. Prophecy deals with world leaders and it names them. It names them sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years before they were born or ever came to power. It, it describes nations and what will happen to them and that's fulfilled. It even gets down sometimes into the minutia, we would say, of what's going to happen in the future. And I want to read to you one great, great example. And that's why I had Pastor Zach read from Ezekiel chapter 26. It's the story of Tyre. You remember in the ancient world they had city-states. And the major cities had walls around them and they controlled the surrounding environs. Tyre was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It was a Phoenician city. The Phoenicians controlled the Mediterranean Sea. They became wealthy through the trade. And Tyre was the capital city of Phoenicia. And remember David, in making preparations for the temple, had Hiram bring wood down to Jerusalem that he floated. It was the London of its day. It was the New York City of its day. But because of what? They did to Israel, God promises that they're going to be destroyed. And he gets real specific. Six different things, he says, is going to happen to Tyre of Sidon. Let me begin reading here about the destruction of Tyre, that magnificent, and I'm reading from Exploring the Future by John Phillips. The magnificent Phoenician city on the coast of Palestine was leveled to dust by Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. in one of history's most spectacular battles. To accomplish his goal, Alexander employed military tactics, engineering genius, and innovative methods that had never been seen on earth before. The story of Tyre's doom originated several centuries earlier, though, when the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 26, pronounced the city's destruction because of its traffic in slavery, its vile and cruel religion. In foretelling Tyre's overthrow, the prophet added detail after detail. He said that the invaders would first take the suburbs of the city, the daughters of the city, it says in Ezekiel 26. Then it would take Tyre itself. Then many nations would come against the city, and that Tyre itself would be thrown into the sea, that the actual city site would be left flat and scraped clean like a rock, that where Tyre once had stood, fishermen would spread their nets. And finally, for good measure, the city known to Ezekiel would never again be rebuilt. In Ezekiel's day, such a prophecy, such a prediction as those must have sounded ridiculous. Tyre was the mistress of the sea, the seaport of the world. Even mighty Carthage, whose troops under the direction of Hannibal, which almost conquered Rome, were a mere colony of Tyre. Tyre enjoyed its greatest prosperity between 1100 and 573 B.C. Its location enabled it to resist capture for centuries. 
Its walls defied even the siege-wise troops of Assyria, which was ruling the world. Tyre was the proudest and most prosperous city on earth when Ezekiel wrote his prophecy. It was the emporium of the world. Its markets were bulging with gold and precious stones from Ethiopia and Arabia, silver from Spain, tin from Britain, emeralds from Damascus, ivory from the east, wheat and honey and oil from Palestine. By the time Nebuchadnezzar's troops came hammering at its gates, Tyre was riding the crest of imperial might and power, secure in its belief having defied the Assyrians for five years, the Syrians fought against it, defying the Syrians for five years, its defenders could certainly sneer down from its walls and fortresses at Babylonians. But Tyre's hour had come, although none of its citizenry knew it. First Nebuchadnezzar's armies took the daughter cities, as the Bible says, on the mainland as foretold. Then in 585, he brought the full weight of arms to bear on the main prize itself. For months, he battered away at the city's defenses until at last he broke through, sacked the town, burned the city to the ground, and left it a rubble, a heap of rubble littering the landscape. But the Bible doesn't say it'll be left a rubble, it'll be scraped clean. The people of Tyre, however, escaped to an island half a mile offshore, and from there they continued to defy the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar had neither fleet nor the resources any longer for an amphibious assault on the new Tyre. He continued his siege for another 13 years, but then he gave up. Both sides acknowledged that the situation was a stalemate, and they signed a truce in 572 B.C. Tyre had won a moral victory over Nebuchadnezzar. But part of Ezekiel's prophecy had been fulfilled, but part of it had not been fulfilled. The Tyre known by the prophet was no more, and its ruin testified to the partial fulfillment of its prophecy. But it seemed it must remain just a partial fulfillment because Nebuchadnezzar had more important matters on his mind than the rubble of Tyre into the sea, throwing the rubble of Tyre into the sea. Meanwhile, the people of the new island of Tyre set about to fortify their city against further would-be conquerors. They built mighty walls 150 feet high all around the coastline of their city. They mined and channeled the mainland with underwater obstacles to sink any unwary enemy ships. They built a first-class navy for two and a half centuries more after Nebuchadnezzar They continued to live in security and prosperity while Ezekiel's prophecies slumbered in the womb of time. Then in 332 B.C., Alexander the Great, the next world empire, Assyrian, Babylonian, as you know from the book of Daniel, now Alexander's empire. Alexander the Great came hammering at their wall, and Alexander was a far more brilliant tactician than Nebuchadnezzar. The Macedonians had won a tremendous victory over Persia in 333 B.C., and they were flushed with victory. They were marching south to take Egypt, but Alexander had no intention of leaving a powerful city like Tyre standing astride his lines of communication. And since his navy was no match for Tyre's, he decided to build a causeway from the mainland to the island over half a mile to get the materials he needed For that mammoth project, he used the rubble of old Tyre that was left behind centuries before by Nebuchadnezzar. Before the causeway was finished, his engineers and sappers had scraped every bit of dust off the old rock ruins and thrown them into the sea. 
The people of the island fought back desperately to halt the building of the causeway of doom, but God's clock had struck the hour. Nothing now could prevent Tyre's full and final fall, as Scripture promised. Alexander's men made giant shields for shelter from the arrows and missiles of the foe as they mole their way, building the causeway. Then his engineers built mobile towers, 20 stories high, with an upper platform that towered 160 feet above the ground. These towers were dragged along the causeway, and from them, Alexander's troops could look down on the stricken city of Tyre. Drawbridges on the front of the towers enabled the Macedonians to leap at last over the massive walls and take the city. So Tyre fell in two different conquerings. First under Nebuchadnezzar, several hundred years later under Alexander. And Alexander had unwittingly fulfilled Ezekiel's ancient prophecy. As the centuries came and went, drifting sand from the sea converted Alexander's causeway into a peninsula now today on which fishermen now spread their nets. Peter Stoner, a mathematician who applied the laws of compound probabilities to seven biblical prophecies concerning Tyre, assigned conservative estimates of probability to each of the seven statements and see if Ezekiel's prophecy could have been fulfilled by chance. He concluded that Ezekiel's chances of writing this prophecy and having it come true by luck amounted to one chance in 75,000. So the, the fact of the matter is, God fulfills his word in situations that we think are insignificant. Most of us don't know much about Tyre or the Phoenician Empire. Most of us don't really know much about Ezekiel chapter 26. But God gives six prophecies from the fishermen using the peninsula, the city being scraped clean, and the walls being torn down and conquered. God fulfills his word, and we can take great comfort that prophecy is history pre-written, and we can rest upon it. Number three. How should biblical prophecy affect the way we live? Next week, we'll talk about some of those key events in the future, but let's make some application here this morning. First of all, we must be alert. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says, Therefore, let us not sleep. Now, the Bible isn't saying that we, we shouldn't go to bed at night or take no-dose all the time. It says, don't be slumbering. Don't be asleep to what God's doing. Don't be asleep to the Word of God. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do who have no knowledge of God, no knowledge of His Word. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The picture is a person who knows Jesus Christ, and he's aware of what the Word says, and he's anticipating God's return, is alive, he's awake, he's watching, and he's living in accordance with the Lord's return. We don't live like people who are just living for the moment, living for their flesh, living for this world, because this world is not our home. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. The word redeeming, you know what that means, buying up. Jesus redeemed us. He bought us back from the slave market of sin. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. So God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, just don't go through life 
asleep or blind or unaware that you have a little bit of time called this life, redeem the time. Make it count. Make your life count. Live in light of eternity is what he's saying. So we must be alert. Number two, we must be holy. God challenges us to be holy. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We can't imagine what it's going to be like when we have our new bodies in our new home in heaven. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when he is revealed, when the Lord returns, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope, everyone who has the hope of Christ's return and an eternity with him in, in glory, everyone that has this hope, what does he say? Purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, we look in our lives and say, is there something that's displeasing to God? Is there something that's, that's got to go? Okay, that's what we do when we live in light of eternity. We must be holy. Knowing Christ's coming is imminent should motivate us to live so that we're not ashamed, as the Bible says. We're not ashamed that is coming. We don't have to hang our head and say, oh, why didn't I believe the Bible? Why didn't I act upon what the Bible says? Number three, we can be encouraged. Prophecy is given to us to encourage us to motivate us, to stabilize us. Not just because we know what each of the ten toes on the beast mean or some other obscure prophetic revealment because prophecy, we aren't going to know always all the details. Some of it is somewhat shrouded and, and somewhat mysterious to us. But we want to know him and want to live in light of his return and we can be encouraged, so we can be encouraged. After Paul explains the events in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the Lord's return, he says there's going to be a shout, there's going to be a trumpet blast, and there's going to be a command, and then we're going to all be changed. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to be with the Lord in the air. That chronological description of the rapture in the first aspect of the Lord's return, then he says this, then we shall ever be with the Lord. And then the final phrase is, wherefore comfort one another with these words. What is he saying to us? He's saying we can take whatever, whatever difficulties you're facing right now, whatever obstacles are in your path, whatever speed bumps are in the road of life right now in the world that you're living in, we can take great comfort. The Lord is going to return. We're going to be translated. We're going to be changed and we're going to be with him. Take comfort in that reality. That is the, one of the greatest realities of life. This is not all there is. We're going to live with him forever. First Corinthians chapter 15, you know that section of scripture, the most comprehensive description of the resurrection and its ramifications. It's the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Paul's closing exhortation after describing the resurrection and how it impacts us. He states, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
his application of the whole resurrection chapter is stay busy for God. Don't let things knock you out of the Christian life. Don't let the struggles of this world defeat you and discourage you and send you home packing. Be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, he says. That's the conclusion. That's the hammer at home statement from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. Understanding the truth about the Lord's return provides great incentive, great stability during difficult times that we may be facing in an increasing way. Knowing that God is coming back, knowing that we belong to him, that this is not all there is. He's going to fulfill his prophetic promises. Gives us great stability and motivation to live for him. Now, the first and most important way to be ready for Christ's return is to be saved. To be saved, to, to know him, to embrace him as your Lord and Savior. So if you haven't done that, the most important thing for you to do is to trust him with your soul. Cast your cares upon him, cast your sins upon him, and become a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the most important aspect of what we're talking about here today. Just as surely as Christ came the first time, over 300 prophecies being fulfilled, as I mentioned, just as surely as he came the first time and fulfilled prophecy, he is going to come again and fulfill the remaining prophecies about his second coming. And he's coming to reward those that belong to him and to judge the world in unbelief. Those who are in unbelief, he's going to judge them for their sins and cast them into the lake of fire. So if you're here today, may prophecy propel you, compel you, to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior if you're here today without him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for this particular aspect of Scripture that deals with the future, eschatology, end times, prophecy. And we ask, Lord, that you'll help us to live in light of your coming, not to get trapped and engrossed in all that's going on around us. Certainly, we need to be engaged. We need to be engaged in our culture and in our country and even in our political uh, aspects that are going on right now. We know that, but always with an eye on eternity. So we live with that in mind, and we ask that you'll help us. Help anyone that's here today that's not ready to die, not ready for eternity, to allow us to help them come to know Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.